The United States has the most powerful military in world history, but after 17 years fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan, an American victory is nowhere in sight. With that and many other threats and challenges in mind, FDD has opened a new center on military and political power. CMPP will attempt to promote, on a bipartisan basis, better understanding of the defense strategies, policies, and capabilities that can most effectively deter adversaries and defeat those who cannot be deterred. CMPP's board of directors is a veritable who's who of leading national security thinkers, including former White House National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who serves as CMPP chairman, and former Defense Secretary and CIA Director Leon Panetta. Check out who else is on the team at fdd.org slash projects slash Center on Military and Political Power. Bradley Bowman, CMPP's Senior Director, served as an active duty U.S. military officer for more than 15 years, taught as an assistant professor at West Point, and most recently worked as a national security advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. He joins me today to discuss America's military challenges and how CMPP plans to add value to the urgent debates underway, as well as the urgent debates that need to begin. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Brett, let's, let's start with a little bit more of your background so that listeners know better who you are. You've been in the, in the Senate, you've been a professor, you've worked for others. Just talk about your, your career up to now. After high school, I applied to the United States Military Academy at West Point and was honored to get in. I was able to graduate and was commissioned as a, a second lieutenant into Army aviation and uh, became a Black Hawk pilot. And um, after serving in uh, Army aviation for several years, I applied uh, to go back and teach at West Point. And so went to uh, grad school. Um, shortly after 9-11, Where'd you go to grad school? I went to Yale University and um, right after 9-11, trying to understand what had happened to our country, just really having two years full time to dig into those issues and then proceeded to go uh, teach at West Point for three. Following that, I uh, did a Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship on the uh, Foreign Relations Committee, International Affairs Fellowship under uh, uh, Luger at the time. Mm-hmm. and published Senator a Richard report. Luger, Yeah, sure. absolutely. And uh, what an honor to work for that statesman. And then uh, back to the Pentagon for two years on the Army staff, then Afghanistan under General McMaster, mm. McChrystal and Petraeus, and then got out and then spent uh, the eight years on the Hill uh, working for members of the two committees. 9-11 changed. Your life changed. My life, this organization wouldn't exist were it not for 9-11, I would think. Uh, what were you doing on 9-11 and how did, how did that change your thinking? Yeah, well, thank you. It, 9-11 it strikes me as it's one of those events where we all kind of remember where we were. And um, you know, I, I talked to my mother. Uh, you know, She remembers where she was when Kennedy was assassinated. Yep. For our generation, it kind of strikes me as one of those things. 
On, I remember uh, Kennedy too. But did, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, on was 9/11, in shop class actually <laughs> in junior high school. But, all right, we'll go. We'll, we'll leave that be. Um, on 9/11, I was company commander of Charlie Company, 12th Aviation Battalion at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. We were a, um, a Black Hawk unit. On that day, I made the decision as company commander to fly both of our helicopters down to Fort AP Hill. The word came in that the first tower had been hit. Uh, we were all like, "Oh, that is." We thought it was an accident. Then we heard the second tower was hit. When we, that happened, like so many Americans, we realized that this was a terrorist attack. Our nation was under attack. So we proceeded to get back to our two helicopters as quickly as possible. As we were going to the um, uh, our helicopters, we heard that the Pentagon had been attacked as well. So we flew back as quickly as possible to uh, Fort Belvoir to uh, preposition ourselves for the fallen missions. And while I was doing that, I was uh, yelling in my phone to my wife, you know, stay in the house, stay in the house, because you never, you know, at that time, it's kind of it sounds a little, little bit like an overreaction now, but we didn't know what was coming next. And so. Um, as we approached Fort Belvoir, uh, we um, uh, we came in low and fast because we didn't know if uh, w- what to expect. And then for the rest of the day, my unit was taking uh, top Department of Defense officials, Secretary of the Army, Deputy Secretary of Defense out of Washington, D.C. to hide sites so that they could survive what could have been a follow-on attack on our nation's capital. Um, after managing that, that night I put myself on uh, one of the missions. Uh, the mission was to go pick up Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz at one of those hide sites. We were told that we were going to take him to the headquarters for the CIA. When we picked him up, he said, no, 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 I want to go to the Pentagon. So I would fly into the Pentagon on once or twice a week and land at the helipad. That night as we flew down the Potomac River and circled, we saw the smoke still rising from the Pentagon. We circled to land at the helipad where we normally landed and it was destroyed. Uh, most every aircraft in the country was grounded. So the only aircraft in the sky that night, as we may recall, was the AWAC, the fighters, and then, and then us. And uh, on the way up there, they told us to below, stay below a certain altitude. And so we were flying much lower and uh, closer to houses than I would have liked. And I'll never forget how, um, how empty the roads were, how I was flying low enough, actually, I could see in people's homes and see them huddled around their TVs, watching the news of what happened that day. But anyway, we, we, um, we landed in a traffic circle because, of course, the freeway was shut down. Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz saluted and walked off toward the, the hole in the Pentagon that was still smoking. Mm. Um, and then we flew back to, the, uh, to our base at Belvoir. Two days later, we took the congressional, Pennsylvania congressional delegation to the crash site in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So saw that. And to this day, I'll always remember, you know, how can a whole plane disappear and be so little of it left? And then a few days later, we took the Army Surgeon General to the ground zero. So in that first week... Um, I was. I, I saw um, the three different attack sites, and uh, it, it made a, a, a real impression on me. It's just two weeks before 9/11. We flew right past uh, the World Trade Towers on our way up to pick up two new helicopters mm. at the Sikorsky plant. I leaned over in my right seat and took a picture of the two World Trade Towers, and there I was three weeks later, and they were gone. I think it was a life-changing experience for a lot of us, not least because there had been a view up to that time that with the with the Cold War ended with the Berlin Wall collapse, with the Soviet Union no more, we didn't have any enemies. I mean, this was very much the kind of conversation I had before FDD was created and after 9-11, that we had been taking a holiday from history, we had been taking a peace dividend, we didn't need to worry about the world, it was all fine now, and would be forever, and of course, we we, we we were sorely misguided. Briefly, tell me a little about, tell us a little bit about your deployments abroad. Yes. Abroad. Um, I deployed in 2010 um, 
for six months. And uh, for the first three months, I worked under General uh, McChrystal standing up a, a new task force, Task Force 2010. So designed it and stood it up. The big idea there was we found out later that roughly half of the, the second leading source of the Taliban's funding was extortion of U.S. contracts. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, nothing like nothing like hearing we? that we're funding our enemies' uh, efforts mm-hmm. to kill us, uh, to get one upset and want to do something about it. And so to do something about that, we had to gain better visibility on what was happening in the second and third tiers of U.S. contracts. We had mm. good visibility on the first tier. We didn't know what was happening in the second, third, and fourth tiers when you got down into the subcontracting networks. And so that's harder than it sounds, obviously, particularly in a place in Afghanistan, when you consider that the acquisition regulations that our military operates under are d- designed for peacetime Maryland, not wartime Afghanistan, and all the challenges that that presents. And so it was a combination of an intelligence exercise, a a forensic auditing exercise and a combat exercise. As Petraeus said, you know, the, the leading uh, uh, non-lethal arsenal that our warfighters have is contracting, and, and yet our enemies were, uh, would come in. We, you know, USAID would want to build a school or build a well, and sometimes in an effort to do that, they would do it outside an area that was secure. Then who shows up the next night but the Taliban and says, you know, give us the money or we're going to kill you. And so we'd find so much of our contracting was being diverted to places we didn't want. Let me ask a question that may be on the mind of listeners. The Pentagon is a very big building. Yeah, a lot of people in there, a lot of smart people in there thinking great thoughts. How does a center on military power yeah. uh, here at FDD add to this discussion? Isn't everything that needs to be done being done at the Pentagon right now? Isn't that what we're paying for with our tax money? That's a great question. There are a lot of uh, uh, impressive uh, programs and think tanks here in town and uh, you know what will make this center different. I think one, the quality of the people who are already here at FDD is part of that and I mean that sincerely. Two, I think uh, just a, a real focus on giving decision makers what they need. You know, having worked in the Senate for, you know, eight or nine years, I, I've kind of been a customer of think tank products. And so I know what I wanted as I was getting ready for that hearing for the Secretary of Defense in one hour. You know, I didn't want a 30-page report. I wanted the three questions and why they were smart. And so I think that experience um, makes me want to uh, encourage the Senator to really focus on being agile and succinct and uh, and um, and pr- really focusing on um, on hearings and events and incisive, succinct uh, uh, policy pieces, op-eds, uh, policy briefs, that sort of thing that are relevant, timely, and agile, just what the decision maker needs at that moment. My experience with bureaucracies it, of, of, of whatever quality or size is there can be a certain amount of groupthink, and that groupthink can mean that there are questions that are not asked. Yes. There are solutions that are not offered. Uh, we, people like to, the, the cliche is out-of-the-box thinking. Yes. You don't get out-of-the-box thinking in the box, right. uh, in the right. organization. You right. need somebody to challenge the, the thinking That's of right. these organizations. And the, and the good leaders of these organizations, whether in Congress, Pentagon, State Department, I find they welcome that. They need that. They know that a lot of people are nodding their head and saying yes, thinking I better not challenge the prevailing conventional wisdom here that will get me in trouble. We at think tanks say, hey, we're happy to get in trouble. We don't care. That's, that's our job. We'll do it. 
Am I right in, in this I, I agree approach? with you. I think good leaders go out of their way to make sure that doesn't happen because that does seem to be the tendency for many bureaucracies to have that kind of group think dynamic going on and good leaders actively try to fight against it. And one way they can do that is by looking to uh, think tanks like FDD to provide uh, kind of uh, new and innovative ideas. It's, it's a balancing act though I think because one way we depend on them to provide us some of the information we may not be able to get via open source analysis. But uh, uh, and so that relationship is important for us. But I also we also don't want to just be telling them what they want to hear. So developing that trusting relationship where they know that we're a serious voice, we're not a bombastic voice, and what we say is based on data and solid analysis, and we're not going to tell them what they want to hear, but they can trust us to be serious and be adults. Yeah, and I'll just mention this as well, and it, it, with the other centers uh, here at FDD. We have found over time that we get asked questions. We get asked to do research. We get asked to explore subjects. It's not just us pushing our, our research on people. On the contrary, they say, if you could do this, wouldn't it be helpful? And I'm hopeful that this military center will be the same. They will start coming to us and saying, look, we don't have a good grasp of this. Give me some options I don't have on the table. That is my hope as well. And I think with the board of advisors that we have led by General McMaster, who is just a real national treasure, I think we're, we're, we're going in strong. And so I look forward to that as well. So about a year ago, I think it was, the Pentagon put out what is called a national defense strategy. And I think it's also true that this was the first national defense strategy produced in a about a decade. It's just really quite a long time and a time of a lot of change. Actually, it kind of surprises me that you can go 10 years without having a new national security strategy. Just maybe outline for us what's in that national defense strategy. Absolutely. Um, if I may just zoom out briefly, of course, we had the December 2017 national security strategy, which is act actually required by law. And right, then that, you the national defense strategy. Now that's the Pentagon saying, OK, how do we apply military? We have other instruments of power. We should be using them. other instruments of power. But the military instruments of power we have and need in order to address these priorities. Have I got that right? Exactly. Uh, right? The national security strategy covers the entire U.S. government. I would characterize it kind of as a whole of government strategy. Uh, and then you have what I would call nested or subordinate strategies that focus in a particular department or agency. And that's exactly what the national defense strategy was that was published in October 2018. And you're right, it was the first one in a while. And uh, very quickly, something new about this one is uh, in the past, I think both of the national security strategy and national defense strategies, we we call a lot of things strategies in this town that really aren't. They are a list of what we've accomplished, what we'd like to accomplish, but you and I know that's not strategy. Strategy at its heart is the coordination of ends and means, the allocation of finite resources, the mitigation of risk. Most of the things in this town called strategies do not do that, therefore really don't deserve the name. But the 27N national security strategy I think was far better than average and the national defense strategy was generally speaking quite good, I think. Uh, and then in November 2018, it's important to note that the um, – Congressionally mandated National Defense Strategy Commission issued their report assessing the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Tell us briefly, too, what this bipartisan commission that looks at the National Defense Strategy reevaluates it. Um, and these are experts outside the Pentagon also. What, what, what was their appraisal? Yeah, absolutely. So the first uh, on the national defense strategy, that was uh, the Senate Armed Service Committee via their annual defense bill changed it. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so good. They made most of it classified. And so what most of it, most people on the outside look at when they see the national defense strategy is actually the unclassified summary of the bulk of which is classified. Um, but the, the neat thing about the National Defense Strategy Commission, which you referenced, is these were um, – 
I believe, 12 individuals uh, appointed six uh, people, uh, six uh, distinguished uh, experts appointed by Republicans, six by Democrats, uh, co-chaired by Ambassador Eric Edelman, who, of course, is associated with FDD, and a former chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral Roughhead. And so they led a, a, a extensive effort uh, that assessed the NDS. And in the broad sweeps of kind of combining the two of the National Defense Strategy and the National Defense Strategy Commission is that the U.S. has um, – been largely uh, negligent uh, since the, the 1990s in, in, in addressing the growing great power threat that we face. And as a result, U.S. military superiority has eroded to the point of a national security emergency. And, and so um, most people, including myself, think that's right. And that begs the question, what do we do about it? Right. Okay. So I'm not going to hold you to this, but right now, your thinking and that of General McMaster in terms of what FDD Center um, on military power should be looking at most urgently? What, what, what would you tick off as sort of the, the major concerns for you right now? China. And um, and uh, and primarily because when you look at threat, I think of threat as both capability and intent, right? If someone has capability but they don't have intent or vice versa, they're not necessarily a threat. Do they have the means to damage our core vital interests and do they have the intent to do that? Um, for reasons that we could discuss, I believe China certainly has the capability and increasingly has the intent to displace us as the hegemon in, in the Pacific and potentially uh, uh, more significantly around the world. And um, and so uh, in key defense capabilities, they have uh, met or exceeded our capabilities, which I think a lot of Americans don't fully appreciate. I don't think a lot of Americans know that right now there are defense capabilities that China has that are better than what we have. And we like to say that we don't want our, our sons and daughters, our husbands and wives going to war and facing a fair fight. Right now, we wouldn't face a fair fight in some areas. They would actually be better armed than us. And so – when uh, the Chinese know that, the American military knows that, and that realization starts to affect decision making. It affects decision making in the Taiwan Straits, in Strait, excuse me, in the South China Sea, um, and it increases the likelihood that our adversaries or rivals might take risks that we would not want them to take that could pull us into a war we don't want. It'll certainly change our alliances in the Pacific if that, if Japan, if South Korea, if others understand that we no longer are as strong as China there. And I'm, I'm, I think you agree with that. But again, the, the Chinese are building capabilities to project power well beyond, uh, beyond the Pacific region, beyond, the, beyond their region. And that's why, uh, just drilling down a little bit more on the national defense strategy, why I believe it's well formulated because it really focuses on restoring the, the readiness, capability, capacity, lethality of the Department of Defense. Um, and it also – the second leading line of effort is that of alliances. You know, when I look at uh, Asia, I see that the Chinese tend to want to, to address challenges in a bilateral way, which makes sense for them because then they can basically bully the other party. Um, I think generally speaking, it's in our interest, in our American national security interest to try to make things as multilateral as possible uh, with our Japanese, South Korean and, and other countries who have our shared interests. So for example, in the South China Sea where we're doing freedom of navigation operations – it seems to me we could be doing more of those in a multilateral way. So it's not us versus China. It's the international order in the world against China who's trying to make claims that are, exceed what international law and precedent permit. You know, some might say that our allies should burden share more. And we've not been eager for the Japanese, and the Japanese haven't been eager either, to build a strong military of their own in the Pacific. Is that the kind of thing that should be reappraised this many years after 
Pearl Harbor? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I think the Trump administration deserves some credit for putting uh, emphasis on the need for our allies uh, to carry a, a bigger share of the defense burden. But I think how we do it is important. I, for, in the NATO context, for example, I think suggesting, as was done initially in the campaign and, 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 and following that, that we might not fulfill our Article 5 NATO commitment if people didn't spend more, I think it was a real mistake. And, and the reason I believe that is... I guess we explain to people don't want yes. Article 5 oh, yes. commitment means essentially if any member of NATO is attacked, we go to their defense, just so people That's understand. right. Thank you. Um, and, and the key idea for me behind that is that our alliances are not charity. <laughs> These aren't things we're doing because we're, we're good guys or good gals or a good country. We do them uh, because it's in our fundamental national security interest. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, Americans should not forget that we were drawn into two world wars in a 30-year period in the 20th century. And NATO helped us prevent a third in a few decades later. And so when we forward station brigades or, or different types of units in Europe, yes, there are benefits for our European allies and we should celebrate those benefits. But it's primarily in the service of our core national security interests. This is, this is good for us. It's not charity. Let's move to Afghanistan where you served. Uh, we've been there a long time. We haven't won a victory there. We may not be able to win a victory there. Uh, it may not be. Uh, I, I don't think that we have had a myself at any point a really coherent strategy and theory of what would represent a victory in Afghanistan. Um, and we're fighting not China, not a great former empire, maybe future empire, uh, a nation state. We're fighting a fairly well ragtag band of jihadis. Uh, who, as you say, finance themselves partly by stealing the money we spend over there. Uh, that gives me pause that we haven't figured out how to do this. I share the assessment that is not going well, generally speaking, in Afghanistan. I know uh, FDD's Long War Journal has done some great uh, research in this area. And uh, generally speaking, I, I share the assessment that uh, we sh we're not seeing the progress we should see after, you know, 17 or 18 years of so much uh, expenditure in that country. I just keep coming back to the fact – I start with the following, that I mean that is where the 9-11 tax that we referenced earlier were planned and launched from. And um, – and uh, we, you know, I, I think what's happened over the last 18 years in some ways is a bit of an oversimplification. We've had 18 one-year campaigns. <laughs> and I mean, I know among military officers, you have people that rotate in for six months or a year like I did. And, uh, and then they leave. And, uh, you know, some of the civilian, you know, di diplomats and development experts stay longer and provide some continuity. But uh, I'd say we really weren't implementing the kind of counterinsurgency strategy that we should have been until much, much after 2001. And one could argue it was never really properly resourced. And, and what ha you know, and the intervention in Iraq pulled some resources and attention away from that. And uh, but I just keep coming back to the fact: what happens if we leave? And if we leave, if the United States leaves, I'm not optimistic about what happens in that country at all. And so, will we be able to abide a situation where you have uh, the Taliban returning to power, where you have al-Qaeda being provided more of a safe haven for international terrorist attacks, um, I think we'd have to return. And I believe we'd have to return at greater cost, both in terms of lives of service members and monetarily. And so I put me in the camp of being honest and objective about how it's not going well. Let's figure it out and make it better. Let's not leave. Because if we leave, we're going to have to return later to greater cost, in my view. 
is the Pentagon actively working on new strategies, or have they been deterred, as it were, from doing that because it's it's that's not what the government wants? It's a great question. I've you know the last two years, my 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 boss was on the Foreign Relations Committee, so I've been focusing more in those t- in that time over state and USAD. So I'm eager to learn more over the coming weeks about where they're currently at and kind of get an update on that. I would argue that Afghanistan is not and never has been strategically very important in the world, but it will be a significant defeat if the Taliban is planting its flag in in, in Kabul uh, in the year or two ahead. Uh, it, it will certainly energize jihadis and others who are anti-American around the world um, if, if that should be the case. Now, that doesn't mean, look, in any war, um, there are battles you don't fight and there are battles you expect to lose. That doesn't mean you lose the war. But you shouldn't ever think that losing is just as good as winning. And you shouldn't ever think, in my view, and you hear this from people, all we need to do is declare victory. We don't need to achieve victory. We just need to declare victory, and then we can go home. I completely agree with that. If you look at the writings of Osama bin Laden, uh, um, he looked at U.S. military defeats and engagements in the past. For example, Somalia. And there's actually some of his writings you can say, you know, basically, uh, if you kill enough Americans, they'll, they'll run. They'll run for the exits. And, and certainly we've shown an, a willingness to kind of stick with it over a long period in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But I have no doubt, I'm confident that Islamist terrorist groups, if we were to leave Afghanistan, would use it. Of course, they would try to use it. And I think it would resonate to some degree as a defeat of uh, the United States uh, there. And if you look, and we don't have to guess too much because like I said, the, 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 um, Bin Laden did that with Somalia and other engagements. Um, but they also did it with the Soviets, you know, with what happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so I think history uh, demonstrates what they would say, and I believe that that would help them recruit more effectively than they do today. Yeah. And that would have that could have implications here at home in terms of terrorist attacks. Yeah, I think their talking point would be we we defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan, and the Soviet Union went on to collapse. We've defeated the Americans; that empire will go on to collapse. I think that's how I would put it if I were the communications director for the Taliban <laughs> or Al Qaeda, and I'm not, but they have one. <laughs> Let's move to Syria, where we have had a very small deployment, something like 2,000 troops, mostly mostly special forces and some air power, which actually I think has been doing a really terrific job over there, uh, working with various local allies, advising them, providing them with intelligence, providing them with air power, all kinds of things, doing great damage to the Islamic State, also um, serving as a as an obstacle to the ambitions of the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, I think it's been a it, it, it has been a very successful deployment. I was among those who was sort of di- distressed and dismayed when President Trump recently said, "I want them out of there post haste, maybe in thirty days, as qu- as quickly as possible." I could understand had he said, "You know what? Before the next election, we're going to get them out of here. That's going to let's figure out a plan." That protects all our equities and allies. Nothing going to be hasty, but we're going to go. But I want. I, I need this for my re-election campaign. I would get that, but it was. It seemed so. Imp- I have to say, it seemed impulsive to me the way he did it, and it distressed me that he didn't seem to recognize how much a small deployment like that of really professional soldiers doing the jobs they were told to do. What a good investment that can be in all sorts of ways. 
I agree completely with the assessment that you just put forward and I would just add the following quickly. You know, in the military, we have a term economy of force and that's the idea of getting the maximum benefit for the minimal input. And, you know, people say we don't want to have deployments in the Middle East in the future where we have 100,000 plus ground troops. Um, I agree. I mean, if you look at the early uh, early months of in Afghanistan, you know, we had special forces teams in there, and 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 then you compare that to Iraq, where we had hundred hundred thousand plus ground troops at one point. We were accomplishing great strategic good for the United States and our allies in Syria um, with a relatively small force, and. Um, if we have the precipitous withdrawal that it appears that we're uh, implementing as we speak, much against, frankly, the advice of most people within the defense community, within the administration, um, I, I believe, we're, to state the obvious, we're going to see the empowerment of Iran and Russia and Assad to the detriment of the United States and our allies like Israel. Um, you know, I, I was there on the Hill uh, when Republicans were criticizing the Obama administration for the calendar-based withdrawal from Iraq. Uh, John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Kelly Ayotte were right then. And uh, I think that same logic applies here. And and I would really uh, be interested in talking with any Republican who was so vociferously critical of the Obama administration that period who now is trying to suggest that what we're doing in Syria is okay. Because it's not. Because it's going to it's not only going to damage our interests as we discussed, it's going to make allies think twice in the future whether they want to look at the United want to work with the United States. I mean Putin has stood by his his murderous ally Assad. The United States fought alongside the Kurds, and then when it gets we get a little uh, tired or annoyed or uh, distracted, we withdraw. And so I worry about the message that sends to allies around the world. Um, I worry about the inability, as General McMaster and Nadia Shadlo and others have said, about consolidating military gains. If you don't consolidate military gains with your diplomats and your development experts, you're going to have to come back. And so, and, and then, um, and then, just uh, again, the the, uh, the allies. So this is how it should be done: minimal input, maximum benefit, using allies. This is something that should be carried to successful completion, not uh, cut off prematurely. And I'm going to elaborate and press this point a little bit because whether you think the American intervention in Iraq was wise or foolish, um, the th once President Obama decided that he was going to pull out all forces in 2011, not even leave it with uh, a residual force there, it was absolutely predictable what was going to happen, which was one – you had the rise of the Islamic State from the ashes of what had been al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, in, 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 in that region. And two, you sort of opened the door for Iran to come in and begin to uh, enjoy the fruits of American hard-earned victory there. Um, we now have some troops back in Iraq. But that was a mistake. We, I think that we had the chance to establish in the very heart of the Arab-Muslim world um, – uh, our power, our influence, and also to be a, an honest power broker among the various factions in Iraq. And, and, and again, that country has not entirely fallen apart, but to, to its credit, it's more democratic and more free than a lot of its neighbors. But it could have been a lot more had we simply stayed there, not with a large force, but with some force, as we did, by the way, in Germany after World War II, in Japan after World War II, in Korea after, in South Korea after the Korean War. Had we not stayed in those countries, the, we would not have the results post-World War II, post-Korean War, that we had. If people think we could have left Germany and the Nazis would not have come back, there were plenty of them still there. They hadn't all fled to Argentina.
in 2006. It was such a horrible situation. And then thanks to the likes of General Petraeus and General McMaster, we put together a surge strategy that in the end, for a variety of reasons, was successful. And then we seized uh, defeat from that victory, if you will, by withdrawing on a calendar-based condition rather than conditions-based. And um, unfortunately, that feels like what we're doing now in Syria. We're drawing based on the calendar, not the conditions and the advice of our military commanders. In fact, we're withdrawing contrary to the advice of our military commanders. I think, sadly, tragically, this is a mistake that's going to become to be viewed as exactly that, a large mistake. Two more adversaries I want to touch on before we wrap up. One is Russia, and you mentioned that. But what what strikes me there is that Putin has a a country economically much weaker than the U.S. I mean, it's not even close. And how big your economy is and how strong your economy is is very important in terms of how strong and big your military can be. That should be obvious, but it may not be. The second is he takes his military and he plays his military cards exceedingly well. Again, for relatively weak forces, he has managed to change the situation in the Middle East. He now has military bases on the Mediterranean. First time of that's happened since the since it, that dissolved under the in the Soviet era. I mean, I don't admire the guy, but I do respect his 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 strategic capabilities and his. Uh, and and his ability to use military force that is weak in an effective way to play a to play weak cards well. I agree with that assessment. Um, you know, my one of I'm I'm obviously a John McCain fan. One of my favorite John McCain quotes is that. Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country, which which is a shorthand way of saying that uh, if you look at the uh, the metrics of power, if you will, many or most of those for Russia are going in the wrong direction. And so, you know, one of the things I studied in grad school was power transition theory. And during those transitions of power is often one of the most dangerous times when you have a hegemon and you have a power declining or increasing coming across. That's often when you find wars occurring. China is clearly an emerging rising power. And according to most metrics of power, Russia in some ways is going the other direction. But the point not to miss with Russia is they also have an incredibly formidable nuclear arsenal. They have a a military conventionally that has been modernized. And as you said, Putin has been playing this relatively weak hand very, very well. And I think one of the reasons, primary reasons he's been playing it well is because the United States has not responded with strength and consistency. I mean, you can go all the way back to the invasion of Georgia. You can look at what he's done in in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. You can look at just, you can look at the supposed a reset with Hillary Clinton. Every time the U.S. signals weakness, almost predictably, you can almost set your watch to it, you see further aggression by Putin. He sees weakness as a green light for additional aggression. And a lot of Americans forget that a preeminent grand strategic uh, objective of the United States during the Cold War was to minimize Russian Soviet influence in the Middle East. And we did that largely quite effectively for decades. If you compare that to now, it's extraordinary, especially after this Syria withdrawal. Russia is going to be, I would argue, more influential and be more of a power broker in the Middle East than we've seen arguably since any time since the end of World War II. And that is not a good thing for the United States and those who would suggest, including the president respectfully, that, you know, let's just let Russia and Iran and Assad go after ISIS because, you know, we all have this common enemy. Yeah, that, that completely misses the point that 
if you're going to get a long-term durable solution, a permanent defeat of ISIS, you're going to have to have a government in Damascus, just like you're going to have to have a government in Baghdad that is inclusive for Sunnis. And if you if you make uh, people choose between guns and the ballot box, and you deprive them of the ballot box, they're going to choose guns. And so without a pl- inclusive political solution in Damascus, we will see ISIS rise again and we will have to return at a greater cost. And by the way, I would add that our NATO allies have not been particularly helpful in terms of Vladimir Putin. I mean, you've got Angela Merkel right now, Chancellor of Germany, and she's supportive of what's called the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, which will make Germany and Europe more dependent than ever on Russia. That's not a smart idea at a time when Russia is being, under Putin, is being as aggressive as it is uh, with its neighbors. You also have the fact that most of the West European uh, NATO militaries are very bad when it comes to readiness. They, they, they can't get their tanks gassed up and on the road if they would need to. Um, this is a problem, a larger problem, and I, we don't have time to go into it in depth, but welfare states, big welfare states, Uh, they tend to grow militarily weak. That has sort of been the rule. Hard to find exceptions to that rule Um, because as you expand your spending on butter and health care and all the other social benefits, you got to take it from somewhere and the military is one place to take it from. But your adversaries see you do that and think this is an opportunity for us. Am I wrong? Right. Um, I, I do. We have seen some what I, readiness gains among our NATO allies in the last couple of years. I, I, Trump, has Trump deserves some credit for that. Not, not tactfully necessarily, but, <laughs> right. but perhaps more effectively than he those has, who have been more diplomatic. Yeah, I mean, previous administrations and secretaries of defense have made that point over and over again. Trump has done it in a new way. Um, <laughs> to an extent. I, to an extent, but I would also cite prim- the primary reason for that is what Putin did in Crimea. Because most of these increases happened after Crimea and before the Trump administration. But, you know, I, I want to be fair. There is some yeah. credit. Um, yes, no, absolutely. The, so there have been some important investments among our NATO allies in, in their in their military. Military readiness. I think NATO as a coalition is more ready today than it was two years ago. But you have countries like Germany that are not spending enough on defense, and they're such a large economy. If they would simply spend two or three percent on on defense, it would be significant value added for the alliance. But the more uh, domestic obligations you have on the federal budget uh, or the budget for them, the less you have on defense. I would just comment on the United States. You know, there uh, a lot of folks say, "Oh, we're spending too much on defense," and there's different ways to measure that, and there's a robust debate to be had. But whether you want to look at percentage of federal outlays or whether you want to look at percentage of GDP, we are at or near the lows, post-World War II lows. Um, strategists will tell you that's not how you determine a defense budget. You start with your interests. You look at the, the most likely and most dangerous threats to the interests. And as Reagan said in his famous 1983 speech, you know that's how you rise properly at a defense budget. But if you want a, a touchstone to judge, we're not in danger of imperial overstretch. We're in danger of entitlement overstretch in this country. Uh, and uh, I would hasten to add that within the next decade or so, the United States is going to spend more on interest on our debt than we do the entire Department of Defense. So we have our own problems as well. Also important for people to realize the U.S. obviously has the strongest, biggest military in NATO. But I wonder how many listeners know who's number two in NATO. Boom, 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 boom. boom. <laughs> the answer, of course, is Turkey, which it, yes. which is a, which yeah. is uh, we call it. A, I would say a frenemy at best, not a reliable. 
member of uh, of NATO. Okay, last adversary I want to touch on, North Korea. This is another, I hate to use this cliche because uh, it's so, but another can we've kicked down the road for more than a quarter of a century, allowing North Korea, despite various agreements, 1994, in particular Clinton, uh, President Clinton had an agreement that he said this will stop North Korea from building nuclear weapons. It did not. Um, it uh, North Korea has nuclear weapons. It has missiles, increasingly sophisticated missiles. It means to have missiles that will deliver nuclear weapons, not just to Guam or Japan or even Hawaii or even Los Angeles and Hollywood, but anywhere in the U.S. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, one of the things they've been able to do is deter us by having very simple conventional weapons, mortars and that sort of thing, uh, close to the border uh, that they could use theoretically, unless we have a, a means to thwart them to uh, turn Seoul into rubble in a very short time. Um, again, I give this administration credit for addressing this problem, which other administrations have said, no, let's leave it for my successor. But we're a long way from mission accomplished here. The there, Rightfully so, there's been a lot of focus on their ballistic missile program and their nuclear program because they've gotten increasingly capable and concerning over time. But for decades, they've had a conventional ability to kill thousands and thousands of people, just like you said, with artillery and mortars and that sort of thing. I mean, Seoul's so close to the demilitarized zone and, we, you know, we, we have thousands of Americans, both military and civilians there. So they've been a, a threat to civilians for a long time. But what is new, relatively new in the last few years is the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon on an intercontinental ballistic missile to the United States, and which brings up quickly you know, our missile defense. I mean, we've tried to stay ahead of the North Korean ballistic missile threat with our missile defense. We struggled to do that for reasons we could discuss. I would just say that should be instructive as we look at Iran. Uh, you know, Iran is using their, their space launch vehicle program to develop ICBM capabilities. So um, we forget, I think that was one of the big mistakes of the Iran deals, that it did not address ballistic missiles. And, uh, and so they're going to, in a matter of time, have an ICBM capability. Um, and if we don't get busy right now with our missile defense uh, system in terms of Iran, we will not have what's called a shoot-look-shoot capability, the ability to shoot down one of their missiles, assess whether we're successful and shoot again. We do not have that capability now if Iran were to field an ICBM, a capable nuclear weapon. And this stuff takes time. It takes time to build a third ground-based missile defense site. We should be looking at that now, I think. Well, Brad, you've got a, a large and challenging portfolio here. Uh, it's, it, it could seem daunting, but I can tell you you're not daunted by it. Uh, you're eager to dive in, and so we're just really thrilled to have you here at FDD and on the team. And we'll want to have you back a lot to discuss these areas and others right here. Thank you all for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.